It is not death that a man should fear, but rather he should fear never beginning to live. Welcome to Ad Hoc History. It's not the podcast you wanted. It's the podcast you deserve. How's it going, everybody? What is up, Luxa? What is up, man? My name is Asher, and uh, thank you for joining us today on the Ad Hoc History Podcast. How's it going? It's going all right, dude. Going all right. I am hanging in there. I'm here. Showing up is indeed half of the battle, and I have made it that far. (laughs) And the other half is knowing. (laughs) Well, by the end of it, we'll be all the way there. (laughs) Fuck yeah. (laughs) All right, so today we're going to be talking about the fall of the Roman Empire. That's right, Luxa. We are going to be talking, maybe not so much about the fall, but the decline. The fall was a long, drawn-out process, right? And mm-hmm. we're going to get into some of it. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Edward Gibbon and the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So Gibbon is like a much different type of historian than the dudes we've been talking about so far, right? That's correct, Luxa. <laughs> Gibbon was writing this work in 1775, actually. So a year before America declared independence. So Gibbon is an Englishman. He was a member of parliament. He was a nobleman, a master wordsmith, a master of the English language. And he's a guy that comes out of this 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 time period, the Enlightenment. And he, he, we just don't really have these kind of guys anymore. He definitely has a way with words. And he's got some really interesting points. I've got some quotes from him that I might toss in every once in a while here, but Here's here's a little teaser. The various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false, and by the magistrate as equally useful. That's so good. Oh, it's so good, dude. Yeah. Like so <laughs> just ah, so good. Tasty. Yeah. Like the whole thing reading this whole thing is like reading a giant poem. Like it's written in this flowery language that you know, I, I mentioned Tuckville in the last episode. It reminds me a lot of him. It's enjoyable to read, if not a little bit difficult. And he's very famous for his use of sources. He is kind of considered the founder of modern academic history. And, you know, he's writing, you know, thousand, you know, over a thousand years after this stuff happened, but he's using these primary sources. So Gibbon himself and this, this work we're going to be talking about, this is a secondary source. And this is a really good example of what historian is and what doing history is in the modern academic sense. And Gibbon really probably is the greatest academic historian, at least in the English language. Now, some of his um, conclusions about why Rome declined, why it fell, are called into question by more contemporary historians. But what's really so special about this work, and it's three volumes, I think it's over 3,000 pages, It's very long, uh, but it's incredibly thorough. It's incredibly well-researched. And he combines this amazing sourcing where he has, you know, very much like a modern book, there are 10 sources at the bottom and he tells you exactly where he got it. So it's very easy to kind of fact check him. And in that sense, it's very academic. But while you're reading it, it is like reading a poem. And he is, he's hilarious. Like he's using irony He's using the, the, English, uh, the English language in a way that 
people don't use it anymore. And it, kind of like a rapper, I guess. I, you know, some rappers kind of do this. Biggie kind of did this. Where yeah, I was gonna say, I think you might just not be looking in the right place. Yeah, because, no, it kind of reminds uh, me. Clever of... wordplay is <laughs> clever wordplay is not dead. Yeah, it reminds me of Biggie Smalls. Now that I think about it, like you have to think about what he said to kind of understand it. So yeah, there's a lot. A lot of that whole genre is like that, which is one of the reasons I think it's so fucking cool like there's just so much that you can get out of like one single fucking like verse oh, the, the english language yeah is amazing like it's not the most beautiful <laughs> really sounding you know like french and spanish and italian and but boy you can sure say some really beautiful things in it but anyways so yeah, yeah so given it you know he's a he's a member of parliament he's you know, an aristocrat you know a gentleman you know this guy who had a one of them wigs that you know like george washington <laughs> had you know he was pretty fat and you know i think he was a lawyer and uh but you know the guy had read i think he read basically anything he could find as far as ancient history and he was able to kind of put it all together in his mind and construct this narrative about why why rome fell and gives this long history to kind of illustrate the point while using sources like tacitus and cassius dio and you know these big guys so anyways it's a little bit more about given there um is there has there ever been any indication as to whether or not um when he was writing this did he have ulterior any ulterior motives do you think like was he trying to influence people in political way or something like that do you think i don't think so i mean one of the thing about these enlightenment guys and and this is empiricism you know he's an empiricist and he really has <laughs> A, a distaste for organized religion. And this is something that was, you know, very prominent in the Enlightenment. You know, that's when things like deism became in vogue because this idea of the Bible being, you know, the word of God just became ridiculous to these guys because they're looking at the forces of nature and trying to define, you know, truth from inherent self-evident truths, aka, you know, this was what empiricism is all about. And yeah, and I think it's also like there's a lot of maybe emotional baggage between the scientist and the religious person stretching back throughout history too that definitely yeah also. definitely and yeah. i don't know if gibbon is a scientist but he definitely is of that era you know he one of his main idols is david hume you know like one of the great mm -hmm. empiricists so. so yeah maybe i shouldn't have said scientist maybe i should have said empiricist or a, you know somebody that likes to try to think maybe like in an objective scientific way or something uh, you know so th this is something fundamental this is cause and effect we can look at these things we can identify you know fundamental aspects of them and i don't know if that's really how history works but he certainly tried to do that and his conclusion is basically that he blamed christianity for the decline and fall, ultimately. And in my reading, we're not even going to get to Christianity. We're not going to get to Constantine. So his own conclusion is different than the one I'm going to make. And I'm making it off of his data. So that's kind of the mark of a good historian where they're giving you enough data for you to make your own conclusions while they have their own opinion. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I like that. That makes total sense. But yes, I would say Gibbon is very, if he did have an agenda, it was an axe to grind with religion, organized religion. I think that that makes sense, given some of these quotes I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have very many good things to say about it. And probably, you know, for, for, for a man of his age and the way they saw things then, you know, for good reason. Yeah, sure. I mean, there has been a lot of abuses of power involved in organized religion throughout the ages. So I can see why people would be mistrustful of it sometimes. This is very true. 
And Gibbon was one of these guys that he wasn't really, he wouldn't have been famous if he hadn't wrote this book. And as soon as this thing came out, he was basically a celebrity and it was so well written and such a interesting take on it that, you know, he was, became very famous almost overnight. And his biographer, Leslie Stevens uh, writes that quote, his fame was as rapid as it has been lasting. And it, it really, he really is still kind of the standard bearer for academic history. So yeah, when I started to do uh, research for this, like he was always the first person that came up. Yeah. Not to, not that I actually did that much research. This is ad hoc history after all. Well, I would expect nothing <laughs> don't less. Don't worry. Don't worry. I don't know that much about what we're talking about. <laughs> well, you don't need to because, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. Excellent. All right. So should we get into it here? Like, Yeah. So, all right. So just a, a little bit more about um, this book. So he's using the these primary sources. And so two of the ones that he's using the most often is um, Tacitus. And he is a Roman historian writing in the second century AD. And this is in the time, you know, Nero. And I think he might have been alive at the end of Augustus. And this was kind of like the first golden age, but then it ran into a big stumbling block with Nero and the, the end of that dynasty. Now, the other historian we're going to talk about is Cassius Dio. And he was alive when Marcus Aurelius arrived. And he, he was a contemporary. He... He served in the Senate with Pertinax, who was another guy we're going to get to. And so Cassius Dio is very much like Thucydides. Um, he witnessed events firsthand, and he witnessed this big decline in his home in his hometown. And he was in a position of power, and he couldn't stop it. So he is very much like Thucydides in that sense. So and, and Tacitus is as well. Um, Tacitus called Thucydides an ancestor in the annals of disillusionment. And Tacitus also <laughs> witnessed a lot of events that, you know, had him shaking his head and had him wishing for better times. And so these guys are kind of a good follow up to Thucydides because they're very much in his school of thought, at least in my opinion. Other people might disagree. Uh, on a side note, Tacitus is considered by many people to be the greatest historian ever. Um, he is beloved and he gets into a lot of things like psychology of power, power, like the nature of power, how it very much kind of like Machiavelli, I guess. Um, but anyways, yeah, so we, we, we won't. Yeah, Tacitus is pretty sweet. We won't have time to do a Tacitus episode by himself, but he really is a, a really great historian. And I recommend reading them if y'all are interested. All right. So anyways, right. so here we are in Rome and we where we last left Rome was uh, you know, Caesar, Julius Caesar. And this is the change from the Republic to the Empire. And Caesar's successor is a guy by the name of Augustus, who was his adopted son. His uh, name was Octavian. And Caesar adopted him to be his successor. I think at least there's some debate about that. Uh, Augustus would go on to kill Caesarian, who was uh, his son with Cleopatra. So there's that. But okay. Augustus was the first emperor of Rome. And he was considered and is considered by many as the greatest emperor ever. And he was an extremely clever ruler. He, I think he learned a lot from Caesar, only he didn't have the baggage that Caesar had. He was kind of like a blank slate. And yet he had the same kind of mentality of Caesar. Like, let's get everybody on the same page. Like, let's, let's try and all be friends. But at the same time, you know, he has irre irrevocably taken power. And he doesn't want to give up this power, but he wants to give the Senate 
He wants to give the you know what the vestiges of the republic uh, their dignity back. He 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 wants to make them feel like they're a part of you know of the system again, and and by that stroke bring them back into the fold and get everybody on the same page. Because mm-hmm. yeah, shit's shit. We if we if you recall, like things were pretty bad. Like the 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 mood was pretty depressed, right in Rome, right after Caesar. The civil authority was in was in ruins, and really, this could have gone a lot of different ways. You could have had a lot of different wars, and after Caesar, there was a big war with Mark Antony versus Augustus. But Augustus was smart enough that after he won that war, he wasn't going to have any more wars. He was going to avoid any more wars, and and that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And he started the Roman Empire, and he was a really great prince. You know, he's kind of like the ideal prince. He saw a long way into the future. He tried to set these things up that were going to last. And one of his main things was that the Roman Empire has reached kind of its natural borders. Like we, don't, we can't really go that much further. Now, the one exception to this was Britain, which they did conquer after this. But pretty much, you know, they're, they're at the Sahara in North Africa. They have Arabia and, you know, the Iraq, that, that desert, you know, separating them from India and Persia. And then you have the Danube and the Rhine in Europe separating them from Germany and the German tribes. So Augustus kind of felt that the empire had reached its natural borders and that we don't need to expand it anymore. We just kind of need to hold on to what we have. And so that was kind of his whole idea. Okay. So up until this point, Rome's been like just pure expansionist. Like they've just been gobble, gobble, gobbling up all the territory around them all the time, right? Yeah. After the Carthaginian War, where they inherited like this huge amount of land, and then they went and attacked Greece after that. They just got a, you know, these ruling families that were running the state, they were competing for glory. And each one wanted to lead an army to a new place to conquer that. So his name would go down like Scipio's name. You know, like they, you had these aristocratic families that were fiercely trying to expand the empire for glory, for, the, for their own glory and for Rome's glory. But Augustus kind of felt that now that he was the guy in power, we don't need any more of these, uh, you know, ambitious generals out there because you know they're going to get too popular and let's just keep what we have we don't need to expand the empire we don't need any more daring generals we just need guys that are going to defend it because daring generals are often uh, you know potential rivals yeah we don't need any daring generals like the dude that like my father yeah (laughs) (laughs) augustus was not a general by the way he he was not a military man he was very much a politician one of the best ones ever Anyway, so okay. the other thing he did, though, this is this is the most important thing, and this is kind of really his biggest mistake. And he created the Praetorian Guard, and this was a, an elite personal bodyguard for the emperor, kind of like the Secret Service, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. And originally, this was dispersed throughout Italy, so you'd have small camps and small garrisons kind of all around the capital in the surrounding country, in the, in the cities. You, you didn't have this giant barracks with you know thousands of guys all there. Um, that's kind of how he set it up. Now, eventually it would become, it would become something very different. But um, yeah, so he did set up this Praetorian Guard. And as we will see as the story goes on, these guys would cause a tremendous amount of problems for the Empire. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, they became the rulers of the Empire. There is almost a transfer of power from the civil authorities to the Caesar and then unbeknownst to the Caesar to the to the Praetorian camp because the Caesar could no longer serve without the approval of the Praetorian. 
so the Praetorian was sort of a combination of a military and a civil figure. You know, it it was kind of paramilitary. It's kind of like a police force. Um, okay. So I guess it would have that kind of civil character. But these guys were not soldiers that would go fight in wars. This was a security force. Okay. And I have a little quote from Gibbon about the nature of having you know, a well-organized security force like that. Um, All right. Quote, the tyrant of a single town or small district would soon discover that a hundred armed followers is a weak defense against 10,000 peasants or citizens, but a hundred thousand well-disciplined soldiers will command with despotic sway tens of millions of subjects and a body of guards, 10 or 15,000 strong will strike terror into the most numerous populace that ever crowded the streets of an immense capital. End quote. Jeez. And I think we have seen this to play out in history. That um, Yeah, I was thinking about all the different times this seems to have been the case. It's kind of the secret of despotism is that you have this, um, this, bo- this bodyguard of loyal troops in the capital ready to, ready to put down any kind of uh, resistance. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well. <laughs> um. All right, so after Augustus, thing, there were some good emperors. But um, unfortunately, things went downhill in a hurry with this Judeo-Claudian dynasty, which is the dynasty that Caesar started. And we got a guy like Nero eventually at the end of it. And he was, uh, we're not going to get into him too much, but I think most people... I think we should do an episode just on Nero, though, because it's wild. He's fun. Yeah, he is fun. It's fun. It's real fun. He's he's wild. Now, as bad as Nero was, and again, we're not going to get into him too much, uh, you know, Gibbon thinks that he was kind of at least um, he was an artist. He, he he wasn't a cruel spirit. He just was uh, misunderstood. You know, he was an injured soul. I think he was just, yeah, kind of like the worst. <laughs> like... he, he was, but he wasn't like this calculating mastermind like some of the guys. No, that no, came after he him. wasn't just real quick. I know we're not supposed to be talking about him too much, but I think it's super funny, like I guess the Romans like hated actors. Like they thought that it was like lower than being a prostitute. <laughs> an actor. <laughs> and so like when Nero was like wanting to do like theater and stuff and like, he's like, do, like making all these people like, watch these plays with him and they're like super grossed out by it. And it's just like this whole mess. <laughs> like... Well, apparently like the show would go on for like three days straight and you weren't allowed to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and like, so like women were like having birth in the in the theater and That's people were faking yeah i don't know if it's true yeah people were faking their death to like try and get out of this show <laughs> the good ruler you know so with with nero's death we have a little quote from tacitus here um welcome as the death of nero had been in the first burst of joy yet it had not only roused various emotions in rome among the senators the people and the soldiery of the capital it had also excited all the legions and their generals for now had been divulged that secret of the empire that emperors could be made elsewhere than at Rome. Mm. And so we have just kind of this new reality after Caesar, after Augustus, after the Roman empire comes to be that, you know, power has been transferred to the military. And the only reason Caesar could do any of the shit that he did is because he had this freaking badass army that was completely loyal to him. Right. And this is the new reality. And, they don't realize it until it's too late, but the power of the Senate is gone. 
the Republic is dead. This is a military dictatorship, and it's the military that's going to be picking emperors from here on out. Okay, well, let's get into it. It looks like we've got a little bit of a timeline here to, to rush through. Okay, so skip forward a little bit, and we get this period in Roman history called the, the, the Five Good Caesars. And these were guys like Hadrian, uh, Trajan, Antonius, uh, Marcus uh, Aurelius. And we're going to start with Marcus Aurelius here, the last of them. And this was kind of a golden age for Rome. This was the height of their power. They had extended almost all of Britain under uh, Roman rule at this point. They had conquered Mesopotamia. Um, there was forays across the Danube into you know modern day uh, Hungary and Romania. Those areas. This is the height of the Roman world, and we have these these fantastic rulers that kind of came out of the wreckage of Nero and started this you know almost a hundred years of Roman excellence, where the Roman Empire is at its height. And we are going to pick up at. Um, 161 AD with the succession of a man by the name of Marcus Aurelius, who became the Roman emperor after the death of Antonius. All right. So what do you, so what do you know about Marcus Aurelius? He's pretty famous. Yeah. Okay. So I'm kind of familiar with some of his writing. Um, I, you know, like to read some of his quotes and shit. He's got some fucking good shit. Uh, I think, you know, he's pretty much considered a stoic philosopher. I think that, if I remember right, I think it was Machiavelli that called him one of the five god empires of Rome. Sorry, god emperors of Rome. Does that sound familiar? Uh, good emperors. I thought he said god emperors. <laughs> good well, emperors. He, he might have. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure he was deified. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, he was a god empire emperor. I guess all of the emperors were sort of god emperors. Is that true or is that not true? It was true, but sometimes I'd have to go in and undeify them after the fact oh, <laughs> if they were bad enough. Fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they were always gods while they were alive, but then it didn't always like stick. <laughs> it didn't always stick. No. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they were always gods when they were alive either, but I think if like that was their thing, they could like become one if they really wanted to. Okay. So yeah, this dude. Um, oh yeah, no, you're right. I'm sorry. One of the five good emperors by Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit more about Machiavelli later too. It must have been a, a Freudian uh, misread there. Um, so what do you know about Stoicism? Well, okay. So I think that it would be easiest to say that Stoicism is probably like relates to like personal philosophies about how one should conduct themselves in terms of like how you should frame yourself in relation to interacting with the world at large. That was, a, okay. that was word fucking soup. Um, <laughs> it was, but that just made you sound smart. Not to anybody that knows what they're talking about. <laughs> just well, so it, it's like, uh, yeah, so it's like trying to like discipline your thoughts and yourself, like trying to discipline yourself to like, and your emotions, kind of like that's kind of my... yeah. I think it, um, it's it's a it's about like how to behave ethically through understanding, like the logic of ethic, is maybe how I would say it. Like like understanding like how about this one. I just looked up a definition because I'm <laughs> floundering so horribly. <laughs> um, so here's a definition from Wikipedia. Stoicism is a school of Hellenistic philosophy founded by Zeno of Sidium, 
in Athens in the earliest of the third in the early third century BC. It's a philosophy of personal ethics informed by its system of logic and its views of the natural world. So I was pretty much right, actually. Like it's about thinking logically in order to behave ethically. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs> cool. This sounds kind of Buddhist. Like, don't. It's, um... I found a lot of um, philosophical crossover between things like maybe Taoism and stuff like that. But yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's all kinds of um, ways that you could say that like Stoicism is similar to to many different Eastern philosophies. And I'm not sure to what extent. Um, it was influenced by it, or the two were influenced. I mean, obviously, it's all connected in some way, but um, I don't know how. So. Oh yeah, there is that um, that connection with the guy who was with Alexander when they um, they made it to India. Yes, that's right. Okay, so yeah, examples like that, definitely. I forget that guy's name. Um, but anyways, yeah, my take is, or my understanding is, kind of like you you worry about the you know worry about the things that you can control. Yes. And, and don't worry about the things you can't control, because what's the point of it? Yeah, you're just going to wear yourself out with worrying about points. Yeah, and so there's always there's always work to be done. There's always things that can be better, but to do that, you have to you have to make yourself better, or or you have to improve yourself. You, have, you know, it's kind of my take on it, or kind of my understanding, I guess. Hmm. All right. Anyway, so Marcus Aurelius is known by his contemporaries his associates as the philosopher <laughs> yeah okay so here here's you know here's a, i think this is this is a good marcus aurelius here right uh, i think this encapsulates stoicism in a pretty good way too actually live out your life in truth and justice tolerant of those who are neither true nor just nice little self-evident maxims that are you know, <laughs> little, it's punny at the same time it's yeah good. there's all kinds of those um but anyways you know somehow you know, we get this guy who is really Plato's, you know, theoretical philosopher king. You actually get a guy like that who is a literal philosopher who embraces this kind of um, this discipline philosophy. This, it's not a luxurious philosophy. It's, it's very much um, about discipline, about um, or, organizing yourself, about um, proper, proper ways to behave, you know, proper etiquette, not, not indulging these, these lower lower aspects of, of humanity, how society should be arranged, you know, what's harmonious, you know, I think that's really kind of what he was interested in. He wanted to be the best possible ruler he could. And he understood that he was in a position of power that was completely unique and that he really could become Plato's philosopher king. He really could try to climb that ladder and maybe deserve some of that praise of divinity that is heaped on you know similar rulers you know making sense yeah oh yeah definitely and it's kind of an inspirational you know i don't know it really was and apparently this dude was super chill he was apparently super laid back like really fucking nice like extremely generous at the same time he's a phenomenal kind of uh warrior king you know the roman empire is fighting these huge wars at this time there's one massive war that's happening in the east, in uh, you know, in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia, against uh, this, this empire called Parthia, which is uh, the descendants of Queen Tamiris and the Scythian tribes. Those those fierce nomadic, you know, horsemen of the steppes. You know, when Persia kind of fell on hard times after Alexander, these guys kind of swept in after the Greeks, uh, you know, destroyed themselves, and uh, 
these guys were pretty tough. And Marcus Aurelius had to fight several major wars in Mesopotamia against these Parth- Parthians. And not only that, the German uh, barbarian tribes were getting very feisty at this time. And they were crossing the Danube, crossing the Rhine. And they kind of actually came together under this uh, this leader, this Macromani, who was a, a suzerain, who the Romans had kind of um, recognized as like a leader and kind of gave him some a little bit of authority across the Danube. But he turned on Rome and he he got all these other German tribes to unite and he, he crossed the Danube and he was causing all this trouble. So Marcus Aurelius, not only was he a great philosopher, but he is... Um, He's leading the country during these epic wars, and he really is an excellent wartime leader as well. Okay, so his rule is pretty good, right? Everything ends up going pretty well? Pretty much. This is thought to be, you know, Gibbon de- describes him and his uh, his predecessor, Antonius Pius, um, as, I'm paraphrasing here, but as a reign in history where for the first time ever, it was focused on the good of of humanity that the the government was focused on the good of humanity that was like the goal of government and this is the roman empire so it seems pretty crazy if you actually if that was actually true but yeah this these guys were really really good rulers okay and this this was a golden age uh this is the height of roman power and you have this philosopher king this this enlightened man uh sitting on the throne and you know he's he's created this whole imperial bureaucracy of of merit well, for a, we'll get into a little bit of this later, some of the faults of, of Marcus. But, you know, for the most part, he is not being swayed by political weasels that are kind of manipulating him. It's not really happening. He he is in control. He is very much a man on a horse in front of in front of everybody else leading the way. Yeah, and he doesn't he doesn't super care about like the idea of like glory and stuff isn't really. Um, part of stoic philosophy per se Um. yeah i think that he felt that his glory would come in if he could do these things really well if he could if he could lead really well then that would be his glory right it wouldn't necessarily be these these victories on the battlefield it it would be his his victory over poverty or or over Mm -hmm. scarcity or you know he was very much a civic minded leader which is very rare in the ancient world that you get these guys, but uh, here we have it. And not only that, the the previous guys before him were pretty good too. And like I said, this is about a hundred years of really good rulership. And a little bit more about Marcus's reign. So, you know, we mentioned this Parthian War in the Middle East in in Mesopotamia, but one of the side effects of this war is that there is a major plague that is brought back to Europe from the Middle East. And this is called the Antonine Plague, or the Plague of Galen. Um, and it started in Mesopotamia in 16, or I'm sorry, in 165 AD. And it eventually spread back to Europe through the Roman army. And it kind of spread all around uh, the, the Rhine, where they had a lot of soldiers to guard against Germany. And then from there, it went into Gaul. And it kind of went all through, uh, through the Roman Empire. And this is a nasty plague, and um, we know about it from Galen, and he is probably the most famous um, physician of the ancient world, and one of the founders of modern 
medicinal thought. Yeah, um, he comes up a lot when you um, start talking about like the history of medicine or biology, even too. He he's got a lot of stuff about um, anatomy and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. So this plague is named after him. Now he was in Rome when it happened, and so it entered the city in six sixty or I keep saying that uh, one sixty six A.D. And he describes quote fever, diarrhea, inflammation of the pharynx, along with dry or pustular eruptions of the skin after nine days. Mm. And I guess modern people have come up with that they believe this was smallpox. Okay. Based on his definition. Okay. Yeah. Um, now it's kind of an interesting side note on this time, and so you know the Roman Empire has penetrated you know, well into Asia along the same roads that, uh, you know, Alexander had taken and, you know, we're in modern day Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq and, and Iran and those areas. But now at this time, there is a connection with China, with Han China and Han, Han China is a dynasty that we are going to talk about at some point on the show, because it's very much kind of like a, the Roman empire of China. Like um, it definitely is, deserving to know yeah definitely i would love to talk about that yeah but so these roman travelers are ending up in china and we find evidence of um of trade you know there is uh, roman glasswork that is found in china there's roman coins found in china but there is also this awful plague happening in china around the same time and so i just when i was looking at this kind of found just an interesting you know Things really haven't changed that much, you know, so we don't really know where this disease started. But through these trade routes, you know, it's affecting China and it's also affecting Europe, you know, and it's 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 connected in one way or the other. We don't know where it started, but, you know, it's traveled to both of them through these these ancient travelers, these connections. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. The only thing that's different now is that just happens a lot faster because we're so much more mobile. Yeah. Imagine, you know, so we don't know really what this was, but. All right, so some of the stats of this, this is estimated to have killed 5 million people. And it's called the, yeah, the Antonian Plague. And, you know, this, this came back again and again and again and again. It was, it was, really, um, it was really kind of a scourge. Mm. And so in China, it came back, I think, uh, let's see, um, seven times. Jeez. And in Europe, it was, it was two main eruptions in Europe. But, so, and they're not sure if this is the same plague or not. There's this, just kind of the theories of a... Of a historian by the name of Rafe de Crespigny. Sorry, Rafe, I just butchered your name, but um, it's a it's a great theory. Uh, I'm <laughs> yeah, that is interested. Interesting. In but anyway, so yeah, this plague comes back through the armies and it, it enters Rome, and it's a nasty plague. And we know more about it from Galen, and, and or I'm sorry, from Cassius Dio. And so the plague comes back. You know, it originally happens in uh, 165, 166, you know, AD. But it comes back in 189 AD, and this the second wave is even worse. And it, when it enters Rome, uh, Cassius Dio claims that it is killing 2,000 people a day, and that is one quarter of those that were afflicted by it. You know, so this is a 25% mortality Gosh, rate. Yeah, that's very high. Yeah, you know, uh, and this this plague devastated massive swaths of the Roman army and of uh, the countryside. But so, anyways, it, it's thought that Marcus may have died of this thing. Uh, Marcus does go on to die 177. Now, we're not sure how he died. He died at Vienna, kind of on the front. Before he died, he had been grooming his, his son, Commodus, to to take the throne. Uh, and this is something that we should talk about because 
there was always kind of this debate about succession in Rome. And a lot of guys like Caesar chose to adopt a successor rather than have their hereditary son be their successor. Sure. I mean, if, if we're going to have a meritocracy, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, isn't that what Marcus Aurelius was sort of talking about? Like, what, let's have this be a meritocracy. And I think it really very much was. And this is going to be one of the things we're going to talk about with his some of the flaws in his character, perhaps. But, you know, he chose to give the inheritance to his son where he could have picked, um, you know, he could have picked somebody. He could have picked a, he could have picked Pertinax. You know, he could have picked someone really good, but he chose his son. Interesting. Gibbon calls this kind of one of the stabs at him from people afterwards that, you know, really you're this great king and you, you made just this, this terrible mistake, but um, this is, you know, quote, the monstrous vices of the son have cast a shade on the purity of the father's virtues. It has been objected to Marcus that he sacrificed the happiness of millions to a fond partiality for a worthless boy and that he chose a successor in his own family rather than that in the rep of the Republic. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty fucking damning, right? Like, in some ways, yeah, I don't know. This is another interesting thing about, like, kind of thinking about what it is to be a ruler, right? Like, the you sort of would have to make personal sacrifices to, for the good of the country that you're ruling, right? To be a good ruler. You know, and this is, this, at least according to Gibbon, and I think Cassius Dio and, and other people, this is the main flaw with Marcus Aurelius. Now, while he is incredibly enlightened um, and a fantastic king, he's almost too good. And he loves his family so much that he is kind of blinded to their faults by his like un undying love for them. I think there's also a thing too where like sometimes if somebody's like really really good they can't like imagine how people could be so bad <laughs> until they like experience it or something like that right have you heard about well and these like... are the people closest to him yeah so i'll give a little quote uh from given here about the character of marcus and some of the downsides of him and he says quote the mildness of marcus which the rigid discipline of the stoics was unable to eradicate formed at the same time the most amiable and the only defective part of his character. His excellent understanding was often deceived by the unsuspecting goodness of his heart. Yeah, man. That's really, really well said. Is that beautiful? It's like said? a really sad too, you know, like it's like <laughs> <laughs> I know. He he goes on. Uh Gibbon continues. His excessive indulgence in his brother his wife and his son exceeded the bounds of private virtue and became a public injury by the example and consequences of their vices. Gibbon continues on Marcus's wife, Faustina. The grave simplicity of the philosopher was ill calculated to engage her wanton levity. Marcus was the only man in the empire who seemed ignorant or insensible to the irregularities of Faustina, which, according to the prejudices of every age, reflected some disgrace on the injured husband. He promoted several of her lovers to positions of honor and profit. Oh, I mean, he was just chill. I mean, maybe, like, I don't know, maybe he just 
That's surprising to some people, but maybe he didn't think that he owned her. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's definitely not uncommon for, you know, the, the empress to have, you know, lovers. I mean, the king usually had a bunch of concubines, so it was, that was just kind of the way it was. But I think what was kind of sad about this is that he really didn't seem to understand or care or he really didn't seem to know because he actually, after her, her death, he asked the Senate very nicely to make her a God and like the God, like the goddess of chastity and, and <laughs> so like, so like young lovers would have to come and pray for her. Like, okay, well that is embarrassing. It was really embarrassing. Know what the fuck was happening? It, yeah. Cause the, and it seems to be the same with his son. His son was like a giant piece of shit. And people kind of realized this from like a really early age. But Marcus... was it like a like, have, did you watch Game of Thrones? There's a character named Joffrey who's like the fucking worst. Is that the little blonde boy? Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> Only not as smart. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, so Marcus Aurelius is this, this man who loves, he loves learning. He loves education. And. He brings literally the greatest teachers in the world to his court to, to tutor his son. His son has the best possible education you can get, but you know, it didn't stick. Commodus just wasn't concerned with education or learning. What he was concerned with was fighting, <laughs> martial pursuits, heroism, and <sighs> yeah, so yeah, another one of these guys, right? <laughs> And so basically, this is where we're going to kind of get into it here. But this is kind of where Gibbon starts. He mentions a little bit of Marcus, but this is where the book starts, basically. And this is the ascent of Commodus, the son of, of Marcus Aurelius. And this is in the year 177. Okay. Marcus dies, possibly of this plague. We don't really know. It's not, you know, there's nothing suspicious about it. So you know, he, he dies. But, you know, before he had died, he had raised his son to be like the co-emperor. And I believe when he died, his son was 18 years old. So Commodus basically took over the emperor when you empire when he was 18 years old. And is that the age that you needed to be? I don't really know if they if they had a they had some kind of ceremony. It's like a something to do with a toga togata or something like a where you get your first toga and become a man. I'm not exactly sure what age that was, but you know Marcus had been grooming him. You know he he made him co-emperor when he was. I think 16 or maybe even 15 or something. Hmm. He made him a consul. Commodus was the youngest ever consul, you know, yeah. Marcus was like, bring he your was... kid to work day. And like, you know, let's make him a freaking Senator, you know, kind of, yeah, man, that's never fucked a kid up. <laughs> yeah. It really, it really is super unfortunate that this guy was such a bad ruler. But anyway, so Commodus, son, um, you know, Marcus dies and Commodus who has been serving as co-emperor, he takes, takes the throne and this is um marcus had been fighting these german tribes on the danube which is you know modern day um hungary austria serbia these are romania eastern europe um balkans and th these are always you know the toughest areas to defend for the roman empire because there's just a ton of tribes you know you could come a lot of these guys are coming over from asia one of these people he's fighting the sarmatians are originally from iran and they had ended all the way up up there and they're fighting the romans and anyways Mar marcus had uh kind of come up with this really smart policy where 
these barbarians would be invading because they're being pushed out of their land. Like this is kind of one of the aspects of, of ancient Germany and ancient steppe lands is that it's kind of like this, like a, a crucible of nations. They're, all these new nations come out of nowhere and they push the other guys out and they got to go somewhere. And so these guys start crossing the Rhine, they start crossing the Danube and they start coming into Rome. And Marcus was very clever and he was able to settle these people on the Danube, on the Rhine and get these buffer states mm-hmm. where you would have these, you know, barbarians that are basically your allies that are, he actually formed two new provinces that were across the Danube populated by these barbarian guys. And so this was a really clever policy that he came up yeah, with Yeah, that's here. super smart. Everybody gets what they want because the, the barbarians, as the Romans thought of them, right? Like were, they basically just wanted a place to live, right? Like, well, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we could talk about them at, you know, the German, Gibbon has a whole chapter on, on the Germans and it's very interesting. And they, calls it this great, you know, a birthplace of nations. There's just this huge forest and all these different tribes are coming out of there. And they really, um, they aren't very settled. They are very much, um, very wild and free. Okay. They're very Maybe free. Maybe just a culture, different culturally. Oh, completely different culturally to the Romans. And, uh, yeah. okay. But yeah, they're, you know, they're crossing the crossing the Rhine, crossing the Danube, and the Romans, you know, instead of killing them or, or fighting them and sending them back, Marcus is settling these guys. These guys are super tough fighters, and you know, he's giving them land. He's giving them um, incentive. He's enfranchising them into Rome. You know, like this is what Rome's all about: enfranchising people. Uh, and so, this is a great buffer zone. These these fierce barbarians, all of a sudden, they got something to defend. They're going to fight for it, you know, and th- this was possibly a really good policy. But after he dies, Commodus, you know, he, he takes over basically while they're on campaign in, you know, on the Danube and all, all these kind of dirty court figures, you know, there, there's always these sleaze bags that end up at these royal courts, you know, and, you know, they're maybe they're charismatic or they're, they're who knows or they just have good connections but it seems to be something that happens over and over and over again is that you get these really sleazy kind of guys people women and men that end up at court and they be, they can become a bad influence basically that's so weird that like all these like gross sleazy people end up in power all the time oh yeah and they're just like clinging to the people in power and telling them what they want to hear but so apparently this is what happened to Commodus this is kind of what Cassius Dio says about him is that he wasn't a bad man is that he just kind of had with without Marcus there to kind of watch over him, all these like kind of gross people kind of got to him and eventually it kind of twisted him. And let's see what Cassius Dio says, quote, he was not naturally wicked, but on the contrary, as guileless as any man that ever lived his great simplicity however, together with his cowardice, made him a slave to his companions. And it was through them that he at first, out of ignorance, missed the better part of life, and then was led into lustful and cruel habits, which soon became second nature. End quote. Yeah, man. And so this is kind of the story that we get that, you know, these kind of guys have been hanging around the camp, and once Marcus is gone, they kind of reassert themselves, and they kind of convince communists that, you know what, let's just go back to Rome. Let's make a peace here. 
you know, your name inspires fear throughout the whole known world. So there's no reason to keep this thing going. Let's just make peace. And so they make this peace with these tribes and it, it's, it's really more of a compromise. And in a lot of ways, they threw all these guys under the bus that, that Marcus had worked really hard to kind of create these buffer states with. And Commodus just kind of threw that policy out the window almost immediately for, for no reason, really, because he wanted to go back to Rome and uh, he, didn't, he didn't really want to fight any wars. That wasn't really. He couldn't have gone back to Rome and had somebody else in charge of the war. I mean, I guess he probably could have, but maybe that wasn't his style. I don't know. Maybe he didn't trust anybody. Yeah, no, interesting, though. Okay, so, so he doesn't feel like being away from Rome anymore, so you know, he so calls he, off the war. He calls off the war. And this is, you know, his father had been fighting this war for basically his whole life. And, and this is, like, something that's, like, supposed to help stop, like, one of the things that's been a huge problem for the Romans, like, forever, right? Yeah, this is just kind of my take. I actually learned this okay. from Mr. Clark. This is not from Gibbon, but... Uh, I have seen other people kind of say the same thing, you know, that this could have been a really good policy because we are going to see these Germans cause a tremendous amount of problems for Rome going forward. And they're always coming across these same areas. And if you would have had this strong buffer state of Germans themselves that were actually, you know, enfranchised, that might've worked. That might've saved the empire. Um, that's a whole nother episode, but, but yeah, that's basically the first thing communist does was throw this, potentially really wise policy of his father just out the window so he can go back to rome and and uh and party basically mm -hmm. all right so and party he does right? and party he does <laughs> all right so commodus when he takes the throne he has four surviving sisters and they are all marcus has married them very carefully to very important people and thus all of his sister's husbands and his sisters themselves are potential rivals to him. And this is just kind of the reality of the situation. Now, okay. something happens very early on in his, in his regime, in his rule. So in 182 AD, so he's been on the throne for four years at this point. He's 22 years old. His sister, Lucia, is involved in an assassination assassination attempt on his life. Okay. And her husband is an extremely important politician. And he was not actually involved in this. Uh, they're not really sure what her motives were. They think she, it was jealousy towards the empress, but we're not really sure. But Commodus, you know, comes aware of this threat and he has his sister um, exiled and, and later murdered. But this kind of, I think, instilled... Um, instilled paranoia in him you know he's 22 years old and all of a sudden you know his sister tried to kill him and... yeah dude and also i mean like looking at it from a sort of a human standpoint like this is this is a young person his both his mom and his dad are dead he's got all this responsibility and shit even though he's sort of been groomed for it he might not ever have really been suited for it in the first place and that's a great point so yeah he's i we could see that yeah, he, I, I could see where this is the perfect point where you start to lose your grip, right? <laughs> yeah. And apparently, like, he was, um, apparently he was very good looking. Like, he had, like, long, curly blonde hair, and he was very well built. He was tall, strong, and, you know, he just didn't care about being 
like his dad. He didn't want to be like a philosopher. He wanted to be a gladiator. And like he was obsessed with that. <laughs> and so yeah, so he becomes he becomes the emperor and he's had this amazing education but it hasn't stuck. He's been I don't know what the fuck he was doing. He probably wasn't wasn't paying attention or he, I don't know. But it whatever, it didn't work. His education did not work. Maybe he was just too dumb to begin with or i don't know maybe they dropped him on his head i don't know but anyways like that just wasn't him i mean i yeah are individuals man and maybe that just wasn't his deal yeah that's kind of what it sounds like really he never should have been rule. he never should have been a ruler he never should have been the ruler now at the same time right so he is popular you know when his father he does make a piece and you know that you know, people that make pizza are usually popular. The war's over, you know, you know. So he is initially very popular, but this does not last very long because one of the first things he starts to do is he starts to devalue the currency. <laughs> and so over the course of his uh, glorious reign, let's see, this is a 15-year reign. The Roman coin, the denarius, the silver coin, went from 96% silver to 74% silver. Wow. Yeah. So a huge, yeah, almost twenty five percent drop in value in a of, very of short currency. period of time. Like, yeah, and this was over three devaluations. Well, so it wasn't all at once, but um, so for people that don't understand economics very well, will you explain like why that can be so um, hard on a society? Well, yeah, it just means that your money is not worth as much. Yeah, so like if you have a bunch of money, all of a sudden you don't have as much without anything happening, <laughs> right? Yeah, if, you, if you've if you've worked really hard, you've saved all this money you've done everything right well all of a sudden they've just increased the amount of currency you know this much then your money's not worth as much and so for the people it's still the, it's still the same coins like you technically still could get the silver out of the coin and get your money's worth but the coin itself has 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 lost 25 percent of its value yeah so for um the people that have money the people that have power this is probably not a popular move at all right you know, it's it's really not good for most people. This is my opinion. Um, you know, you're you're purchasing. It's bad for savers, right? It's terrible for savers, but it's also bad for just the average laborer because it's not like their you know their wages of you know, inflation adjusted. They're still getting the same amount, but it's not worth as much, sure, right? Sure. So like the, so, the dude that's like making bricks or whatever, he's still getting the same amount of denarius, but he can't buy as many like loaves of bread with it. Yeah. If they were like trying to exchange that for foreign goods or whatever, it's not going to be worth, you know? Okay, cool. Yeah. So I, I'm not exactly like, I think the denomination still was technically the legal value. Like it had to be the legal value, but when it comes to foreign trade, that's when it, you know, it had lost 25% of its real value. I think that's how it works. I'm not hundred percent sure, but do we know what his motivation was on this? Uh, yeah, so Commodus was very much a man of the people, but in kind of the worst possible way, he embraced largesse and these huge festivals and um, just kind of lavish overspending. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'd have these huge, you know, games where they... Bread and circuses and shit, right? Oh, yeah. He took that to its logical conclusion where he's such a shitty ruler, but people don't really care because he's keeping them entertained. Kind of keeping, they don't really realize how Jesus. bad it is because they're, 
they're entertained. And he's he's coming. He's the son of Marcus. You know how bad could it be? You know how bad could this guy really be? And oh man. So anyway, so you know, entertaining ruler. (laughs) (laughs) So so one of the you know one of the quirks of Commodus's personality is that you know he didn't care about government. He he wasn't interested in it at least early on. So so one of the things about Marcus is that when he took over, he had already been groomed by the previous emperor mm-hmm. and the previous emperor before him to be this successor. And he was like an expert lawyer. He had this amazing grasp of civil uh, civil law and how things should be. Commodus had no idea how anything is ran. He's completely clueless. And so he has these ministers. He puts all of his power into these ministers. And these are basically his buddies. And so when I'm talking about these, these kind of greasy people that show up at court, you know, Gibbon calls these uh, oh, worthless favorites, <laughs> worthless favorites. Yes. So all the worthless favorites That's become, so <laughs> I know, right. They become people that are in big positions of power, his personal buddies. And these guys are corrupt as fuck. And, you know, there's a few of them that we could go through. He has like three or four incredibly uh, notorious ministers that were, uh, they were up to no good on a big scale and they're having these huge intrigues against each other and they're getting each other killed. But so, but one guy I do want to talk about is um, this guy named Cleander and his name kind of rings with infamy throughout history. All right. Uh, so you may you, have heard that. I, I don't know if I, I might've heard of Cleander. What did, what did this guy do? You know, so he had organized the, uh, kind of the assassination of the previous minister of state through some, some intrigue. But by this time, this is 190 AD, Rome is going through a huge food shortage. Now, these ministers have taken over the entire supply of grain to the empire and have kind of made a monopoly on grain. And, you know, Rome is very much like Athens. It has to import a shitload of of grain from places like Egypt, you know, North Africa. So grain is really important. And there's like a million people living in Rome and whoever controls the grain, you know, kind of control everything. And so somehow this, these, these ministers have weaseled their way in to control the entire grain supply. And they've, they've manipulated the price through artificial scarcity to create almost like a famine like atmosphere where, there is literally a hungry mob that cannot afford to buy bread anymore because the price is too high. <laughs> All right, so this is 190 AD. This is the climate. And Cleander is the head of the Praetorian Guard, you know, this uh, personal bodyguard to the emperor. Yeah. And he is in charge of the grain supply. And we're not sure if he's the one who did this or if his enemies did this and blamed it on him. But anyways, it comes to a head where... Uh, a mob after a horse race at the um, the Circus Mas- Maximus. Big horse race. People are drunk. They're hungry. They get pissed. They decide to uh, march on the palace. So the angry, hungry mob descends on the palace demanding the head of this Cleander guy. And so Cleander is the head of Praetorian Guard. And he unleashes the cavalry on the populace. And they trample them down, and there's a battle going on literally outside of the palace. And Commodus is nowhere to be found. He doesn't even know this is happening. And like I, this happened for a few days. The people would come back, they'd fight a battle, and then they'd retreat. 
basically a civil war on the streets. And I will read you what uh, Gibbon has to say about it. Quote, the people demanded with angry clamors the head of the public enemy. Cleander, who commanded the Praetorian Guards, ordered a, bo a body of cavalry to sally forth and disperse the seditious multitude. The multitude fled with precipitation towards the city. Several were slain, and many more were trampled to death. But when the cavalry entered the streets, their pursuit was checked by a shower of stones and darts from the roofs and windows above. The foot guards, who had long been jealous of the prerogative and insolence of the Praetorian cavalry, embraced the party of the people. The tumult became a regular engagement and threatened a general massacre. The Praetorians at length gave way, oppressed, by their, oppressed with numbers, and the tide of popular fury returned with redoubled violence against the gates of the palace, where Commodus lay dissolved in luxury and alone unconscious of the civil war. <laughs> Commodus started from his dream of pleasure and commanded that the head of Cleander should be thrown out to the people. The desired spectacle instantly appeased the tumult. Oh my God. <laughs> so we come from Marcus Aurelius, yeah. like 10 years earlier, the philosopher king. Everything's chill till like fucking riots in the street and like, oh, you want this guy's head? Okay, <laughs> here you go. Okay, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess after that, people were very happy and they like kind of went home and... It was fine for a few more years until, you know, the next madness. <laughs> so Cassius Dio, who, again, is a contemporary of this period. He is alive in this period. He is a senator. He is witnessing all this happen. And he describes this as, uh, quote, a descent from a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust. Mm. Jeez, man. All right. So after this Cle uh, Cleander debacle, and by the way, this was like the third minister that he's had to execute and throw you know the head to the people and this so is like speak. his buddy right yeah this is one of his buddies yeah okay so and oh he turned on him in a heartbeat yeah yeah so cleander yeah so cleander escapes to the palace and he's trying to hide he's trying to ask for safety he's, he's begging like, help me commodus they're trying to kill me because i'm starving them and i'm a huge dick <laughs> <laughs> and so it's actually marcia who is, I don't think is why, I think she is just his favorite mistress, like his concubine, but she's kind of one of the the main influences on him. I on, think she on is Commodus? the on Commodus, okay. yeah. I think she's able to convince him to look like you gotta the people are going to attack the palace and kill us if we don't do this. Like, what they want. <laughs> so here we go this is the reign of Commodus uh, but after this kind of debacle you know he decides to kind of take on more reigns of power himself and oh. he kind of has this kind of um, cabal with Marcia and his chamberlain and his, his prefect and they're kind of the voice in his ear okay so he his his girlfriend and his like another buddy of his sorry yeah the okay. chamberlain and the prefect so I don't have these guys' names, but these are big positions. The Chamberlain is the head of the palace, like the head of the royal uh, household, I think. The, like royal staff? Yeah, I think it's like the head of the staff. And the prefect is the head of the Praetorian Guard. Okay, cool. So he, yeah, he cut off the previous guy, previous prefect's head and threw it out there. But uh, So anyway, so Commodus now decides to take more control personally. And, you know, he's had these, he's, these ministers and, you know, he... he 
he, he kind of claims that, look, I, I was misled. These guys, um, you know, I, I'm young and naive and I had these, these bad, bad advisors. And I now, you know, now I'm going to show that I'm ready to rule and I'm, I'm going to make up for it. You know, I'm going to make up to y'all. And so this is kind of like the second stage of his role, which is um, marked by just this incredible kind of legendary megalomania uh, where Commodus, well, I'll just get into it here. All right. So, you know, Commodus has always fancied himself a gladiator, a hero. Um, he doesn't want to actually do like military fighting. Like he wants, no, he just wants to like everybody to cheer for him and like, that's not sexy. Yeah, it's less sexy when you're like out there sleeping in the cold on the ground and whatever. I don't know. I'm sure he didn't have to do that since he was emperor, but still. <laughs> I mean, to follow orders and like be disciplined. No, I just want to be like this. Uh, uh, yeah, getting up early. <laughs> well, <you know. laughs> All of it. I mean, and these gladiators, some of them were like big celebrities. Like it, um, kind of like yeah. athletes, you know? Sure, yeah. So anyways, this has always kind of been a hobby of his. And I guess he's been training in the palace in secret all this time. <laughs> so, like, can, like, what would this be like? Like, what would it be like if the president decided to, like... Oh, God. Go know, on professional wrestling? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I a boxer? Like, yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. So, yeah. So Commodus, eventually, he... He becomes brave enough that he is ready to uh, to share his brilliance with the world and let the Roman people know how great of a of a hero and fighter and and gladiator he is. It's not enough that I'm the emperor. They have to know how fucking great I am. <laughs> they really have to. They have to really understand. I really have to show them how cool I actually am because they don't get it yet. They don't. They don't know. Yeah, they don't know how great <laughs> I really am. Cool, I really yeah. am. Like, I'm going to show them. Like, and this is going to be fucking amazing. It's and I'm going to make everybody. Epic, bro. You'll see. <laughs> All right. So, I guess. So, he fought in the arena like a bunch of times. And, you know, he never lost a fight. Um, That's weird. I know. It's, it is weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he did not kill his opponents, his gladiatorial opponents, I should say. Uh, he accepted their surrenders. Uh, I guess sometimes during the battle or after the battle. Um, they would be scarred, and this was like a huge uh, badge of honor that the emperor had wounded me, and so he would like kind of like scar his opponents after the fight as like this nice thing to do, like cut them, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyways, very uh, Roman. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, now, again, this is uh, according to Cassius Dio citizens of rome that were uh, missing their feet or legs through accidents or through illness or through you know birth defects or whatever mm -hmm. uh they were uh, gathered and tied together so commodus could club them to death while pretending uh they were a giant what the so, fuck uh, uh, yeah so i'm not exactly sure how this looked but i think wait what did you just fucking say to me i'm sorry can you back up for a second yes this is according to cassius dio um so people, yeah, people that didn't, were like, I guess, mental or not uh, physically had physical disabilities where they're missing feet. Or... Okay, so people with physical disabilities were rounded up and tied together? Like, yes. is that what you said? Tethered together, yes. So, so Commodus that... could club them to death while pretending they were giants. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, now, this was, you know, this is expert craftsmanship here, and he's not doing this for free. 
you know, this is a service. And so every time he performed in the arena, he charged the city of Rome a million uh, sesterces. I'm not sure what currency that is, but um, yeah, he charged them a million coins every time he did this. Okay. (laughs) So he was plundering the treasury. So he's like paying himself. Yeah. Like not only do you not understand how cool I am, I'm going to, like, charge you a bunch of money to find out. <laughs> yes. Yes, you're welcome. You're and welcome. yes, it, it is going to cost oh, you, I though. I see that uh, you've been born without a foot. Allow me to club you to death so I can you're... pretend that you're a giant. What the fuck? So it does go on. Um, what the fuck? Cassius does also go into the exotic animals that Commodus would slaughter in the arena. Uh, apparently, he murdered or slew... A uh, hundred lions in a single day, and they like they let them all at the same time, and he would just like kill them all. I, he he was a very excellent shot, apparently with a bow uh, and with a javelin and stuff. But he he was a very talented. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it sounds like he was a yeah talented martial artist. Yeah, he was. He was. He was very good. I mean, he killed a hundred lions. I mean, and he had an ostrich. Um, so he had like this this arrow that was shaped like a crescent moon uh, going outward. And then he would have an ostrich running and he'd shoot this arrow and it would decapitate the ostrich. And then apparently he took this head and this is a very exotic animal. He, he took the head and he like threw it into the, the box where all the senators were and said, you're next. <laughs> <laughs> now, according to Dio, the senators actually found this hilarious and, and were laughing and had to actually chew on their laurel uh, crowns to prevent themselves from laughing because it was so ridiculous. That's very uh, fun. I guess <laughs> yeah. I'm a little bit mad that he's killing all these animals. By oh, the way, dude. But <laughs> yeah, no. Not and as mad as about the clubbing people to death, but still. This is a nasty thing about the Romans is that they killed. They may have killed. They may have like hunted animals into extinction for the Colosseum. Oh yeah, they were like all about it. It was gross. Yeah, they. It was really gross. But anyway, yeah. So was this was this like already a thing, or is this kind of like ramping up right now? I think it already was a thing, but I think it really is ramping up now. This okay. is when it got really gross. Yeah, because I thought that like things started to really intensify and accelerate around when things started to really go downhill. I'm pretty sure that Nero also did kind of a similar thing with the bread and circus. Definitely. But... Okay, so just while we're on the topic, I have a Gibbons quote to read. Um, okay. The five marks of the Roman decaying culture, he says, were uh, concern with displaying affluence instead of building wealth, obsession with sex and perversions of sex, <laughs> art becomes freakish and sensationalistic instead of creative and original, widening disparity between the very rich and the very poor and an increased demand to live off of the state. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> wow. It sounds like he's describing um, a lot of different. I kinds. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't sound I, familiar at all to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of Weimar Germany, but God, that did sound pretty familiar right now too. Uh... <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, again, we'll, we'll talk about this more, but like, you know, the mechanisms of history, will it actually repeat itself? Can we predict the future by looking at the past? We don't know. But Hell yeah. And I think we'll, yeah, that. we'll try and get into some of that in the discussion here. Yeah. Um, but just to finish up, Commodus is a little arena thing. He also killed three elephants on a single day by himself. 
and he killed a giraffe, which was like the first time it had been seen in Rome. And uh, people were uh, disgusted. They thought it was like this helpless, noble beast. And they were really upset that he killed it. Well, they um, are very sweet. Yeah. And, and well, by the way, the, ones the, met. the population of Rome, they were not um, impressed by this display. display. <laughs> oh, they weren't into like, the fact that he's like fucking like like putting people in control of the grain that's like starving people and charging everybody so that he can go dick around in the fucking arena and like yeah, yeah this mur- is bad murder all these exotic animals this that no one had ever seen before bad right like all right so we'll go it goes on all right so the next big thing that happens in night um 191 ad a fire breaks out in rome and it burns for several days and this is uh, it does a lot of damage to the city, and it is somewhat reminiscent to the Nero fire. But Commodus takes this as an opportunity to rechristen the city of Rome in his own name. So Rome is renamed Colonia Lucia Ania Commodiana. Oh my God! And he declares himself the new Commodus or a new uh, Romulus. Sorry, he's the new Romulus. He is the new Romulus, and he takes uh, a new name, and it's actually 12 names. Um, so it's Lucius, Elias, Arius, Commodus, Augustus, Herculeus, Ramianus, Exuperiatorius, Amazonius, Invictus, Felix, Pius. Uh, so that's his new name. And uh, they I mean, go ahead he, and he didn't even put like superioris or anything. Oh, no, that, that's in there. No, um, oh, I probably but I probably butchered that. But um, oh, there wasn't it, a superioris in there. Th- there there was ex superiatorius. Oh, gosh, that's probably even better. It it corresponds to Jupiter. It's yeah, I think it's supposed to mean like su- the biggest, the, su- bestest, the biggest bestest. Yeah. <laughs> so that's his new name. And that's a fun name. Um, it's very fun. So he re- he renamed all the legions the um, Commodiane, and he re- renamed the uh, the fleet of ships that would bring all their grain to Rome the Alexandria Commodiana Togata. I'm sure that the etymology of this has nothing to do with it, but I just thought of like the word commode, you know, to refer to like a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Commodus. Um, he was not done there. He did rename the Senate um, the Commodian Fortunate Senate. And the Roman people themselves were renamed Commodianus. And the day that these decrees, <laughs> the day these, de- these decrees were made was Dios Commodianus. Commodus Day. <laughs> so that was going to be like the new biggest holiday, okay. Commodus Day. So like, <laughs> We've got this, like, I mean, what what word would you? I don't even think narcissist covers like what's happening with this person. Like, what it like? What would you say? Um, what would you describe this phenomenon as being? Like this, like God. he's already emperor. He's already has like all of the, but he, but it's not enough for him, right? It's like it's never enough. I don't know. Like, I think he maybe he really was just kind of thick, kind of simple, and. Maybe he did fall into the wrong company and his companions, as Cassius Dio calls them, 
you know, led him into this life of lustful and cruel habits, which became second nature. I don't know. But I mean, like, why, why this like constant lust for glory, right? Like, what is at the heart of that? It's got to be insecurity, right? Yeah, like what personal shortcoming? Yeah, it's got to be insecurity. And like, I think it, you know, when he when he renamed himself those twelve names, you know, I don't know, it, it was not stressing Aurelius, you know, his father, okay. the real source of his power, you know, he's. He's sourcing. He's mentioning Romulus, Hercules, Jupiter. He's trying to say that the that he's like somehow connected with these people, oh, dude, and not you know with his father. Knew, maybe he knew that he would never be able to like measure up, so he doesn't want people to compare him to his dad or to think I mean, about his dad. It kind of seems that way, right? Like maybe his dad was just so great that he knew he could never live up to him, and yeah. he didn't want to, or Who that knows what kind of like personal relationship they had too. Like maybe his dad didn't pay enough fucking attention to him or some shit. I don't know. (laughs) Something was seriously wrong with this kid. And uh, other people, you know, mentioned it. Like people, people knew that this guy wasn't quite right. Yeah. When he was a kid, this is a bad dude sort of right. Like, yeah, like this. And and they weren't sure that Marcus was going to really appoint him successor until he did. And then it was just, we got to hope for the best. Basically, you know, we, Marcus is a really smart guy. We are just going to trust him and, but I don't know, but it does seem like some kind of insecurities involved. Um, well, it's just like, it's like pa- his behavior is like pathological, right? Like, oh, it's definitely, I, I'd say so. Yeah, I would definitely say so. There does seem to be something, something wrong with this guy. Very interesting, and, right? <laughs> and like, you know, it kind, now that I'm thinking about it, like it kind of reminds me of, of just when I was reading the Albert Speer book about, about Hitler how he's mm-hmm. surrounded by these guys that are constantly telling him what he wants to hear, constantly telling him stuff. And I think that when you're the guy in power, you have, you have the last say and you're constantly being barred bombarded with the stuff. I think it is hard to kind of, to not believe your own bullshit, you know? Sure. Sure. When you have a legion of psychophants that are literally just telling you exactly what you want to hear, telling you how great you are all the time, you know, like. But is it a good leader would set it up so that people that surrounded them wouldn't just be sick of bands, right? Like they, uh, yeah. they would question, like yeah. a, a good leader would set themselves up with, with people with wise that advisors. represent yeah. the opposition of what they think, you yeah. know, like, and there actually, you know, there was one guy left in the room and this was this guy, Pertinax and Pertinax was at this point, the um, prefect of the city, which basically means he was the mayor. Okay. And this guy was a really well-known and respected statesman who had served with Marcus. He was really Marcus's last minister left under Commodus. And Commodus still relied on this guy heavily. This guy was one of the guys that was running the empire, and he was actually doing a phenomenal job doing it. He's one of the few guys left that was actually doing a good job. But, you know, so there was some good guys left in, in Commodus's circle, but it, it it does seem, at least to me, and... It's kind of from from Cassius Dio, though, that, you know, he just didn't really have a good feel for for his advisors, you know, and it's kind of like a head coach in in uh, sports, you know, like you need to have good assistant coaches. You need to surround yourself with good people or else you're just out there on an island and you're all by yourself. And 
Maybe but it was if, just too much for him, and he yeah, had to live in this fantasy, you know? Yeah, and if you're Commodus, though, like, we remember how paranoid he was. Like, he doesn't want to surround himself with people that he thinks might be competent enough to usurp him, maybe? Yeah, no, that's a good level. point. I don't know. Yeah, so, yeah, when, when his sister tried to kill him, again, her husband was one of the most important guys in Rome. I think he was a consul, and he wasn't, he wasn't involved in the plot. It really spooked him, you know, that there's people close to me people my father's people that you know could be after me and i can't trust anybody like if i can't trust my sister i can't trust anybody mm-hmm. that's fucking sad really you know <laughs> yeah but he was a, he was not a, not a great guy so we don't feel that bad for him <laughs> no we don't and uh this <laughs> this kind of culminates um when he renames each day of the month after one of his names. <laughs> Wait, so now does he have 31 names? I'm confused. I'm sorry, not each day of the month. I'm sorry, each month of the year. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Yes, so each month of the year is now, um, yeah, name is one of his names. Okay. So everything is Commodus, and he is, you know, this this great warrior, this natural hero that... Would have been more, um, you know, at ease, you know, fighting in a Trojan War or in some heroic mythology. And but, you know, so he, he feels like he is channeling Hercules and that like he is the new Hercules. And oh so all the statues of him, you know, he, he has the club of Hercules and the lion, the lion skin. And, and he's turned. He has that thing in the mythology of hercules where he like murders his wife and kids and stuff i'm not sure about Just saying, that. like i don't know like i thought it didn't always go great for hercules. i can't remember it, right now, i don't though. yeah i'm not sure i'm not we'll sure. get back to y'all on that or you can let us know at ad hoc history pod at gmail.com <laughs> i get you know i guess there was this big kind of like colossus that was um outside of the coliseum and, and he had it changed to him and had it draped with like uh, a lion's head you know lion skin and a, and a club and he'd have the lion skin and club by his throne when he sat there so i'm sure everybody loved that right oh yeah i mean i think everybody really accepted and believed that he was the new hercules <laughs> like i think it was just kind of self-evident like <laughs> <laughs> everybody could see how great he was <laughs> and like so I don't know why, but, you know, people are starting to become um, dissatisfied with his rule. And especially the um, the senatorial class, because, you know, like I said he, his, his reign is really uh, accentuated by this largesse. And this is all basically wealth that is being plundered <laughs> from really anywhere you can find it. You know, we mentioned the currency. But he is also taking away all these estates from all these senators and stuff and just plundering, you know, these ancient families for everything they're worth and uh, and replacing them with these um, completely useless uh, psychophants that have no merit whatsoever. And uh, so, yeah, he's making a ton of enemies and uh, in, in important high places, I guess. All right. Shockingly. I yeah, mean. shockingly. So, like, we've gone from the philosopher king to like 
somebody who likes to pretend that they're the reincarnation of Hercules and it seems to be completely divorced from reality in a lot of really important fundamental yes. ways. Yes. Now it is kind of interesting because he is popular at times during his rule and it seems to be that, you know, mass bribery, so to speak, is a potential way to remain popular in a society like this where there is really no middle class. It's just kind of these aristocrats and and then the mat, you know, yeah. the multitudes. Well, now was this was this always the case in Rome? Because I thought that that Rome did sort of have a middle class for a while, but as Gibbons points out, that starts to sort of disappear as like this huge disparity um, of wealth starts to be created. It sounds like, in a lot of ways, through the kind of stuff that Commodus was sort of doing, right, like plundering the wealth and just basically hooking up his buddies and. Well, yeah, and like. Yes, and I'm not 100% sure on the economics of ancient Rome. So I don't really know if I'm prepared to speak okay. intelligently oh, on enough. it. Fair enough. But I'll say this. So the key to his rule, now he's plundering all this you know, money from the political class. We'll just call them that. And these are ancient families. Um, he's impoverishing them and, you know, and enjoying it, by the way, like making fun of them and... It, very disgraceful, very unhonorable for a lot of these people. And um, yeah, it's a bad. But look. he is enriching his soldiery. He has understood that if I have the soldiers on my side, it doesn't matter what I do. And this is really when we start to see this decline in discipline in the Roman army, but more, more directly in the Praetorian camp. And this is really when the Praetorians start to lose their discipline. And this had always been kind of an elite force where like the cream of the Italian youth would be selected to be these elite bodyguards for the emperor. Yeah, being a, being a praetor was like a huge, an honorable title, right? Like, Yeah, Praetorian is, was, yeah, this was an elite force. You know, this wasn't some, this wasn't a bunch of barbarians that were drafted into the legions that are thrown into battle. These were the flower of Italian youth, at least the start. And um, they went along with this awful guy because he was paying them off, right? Like, sure. It really was that simple. Like, they could have got rid of him at any point, And eventually, well, we'll see what happens. But um, <laughs> we will. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of the key to Commodus's rule is that he's keeping the people happy with this with these ridiculous festivals and stealing all this money. At the same time, he's also paying off all the soldiers. So he really doesn't give a shit about what the senatorial class or the the upper class or the traditional ruling elite. He doesn't give a shit about what they think. He, he's got his guys and his soldiers and uh, he is uh, a superstar. You know, he's a rock. He is the greatest human being maybe to ever live in his mind. Yeah, he's he really is the greatest in his own. But mind. anyways, yeah. So unfortunately, you know, this style of rulership, you know, has ruffled a lot of feathers. And um, we kind of got a little window into the palace, which was probably the most terrifying place to be of all, all the places because you were exposed to his like intimate uh, psychosis. And uh, 
you know, the, these these crazy rulers tend to terrorize the people closest to them the most. You know, Stalin was very much like that. Uh, sure. Yeah. And I think that we see that, I mean, not to try to apply <laughs> secondary, secondhand psychology or whatever, but I think that that's pretty common with people with yeah. these, uh, what would you call it, d- difficult personality types? Psychosis? Like- I, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, so it's it's no miracle that this, you know, we get a, we get a palace plot that ends up being the undoing of old Commodus here. And it's basically his his uh, his mistress, Marcia, and the prefect and the chamberlain, the three guys that kind of formed his um, cabal. They all got together mm-hmm. and they just said, we can't we got to get rid of him. And I don't know exactly what the impetus was, if there was something like exactly or something specific that caused them to do this. But uh, this is what happened. There's a palace plot where, you know, the, the, his closest, you know, closest people had him murdered basically. Yeah. Well, maybe it just got to the point where they couldn't let it go anymore. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, he's terrorizing them probably to the point like breaking points, you know, and um, he, he is, he has renamed the entire state and all apparatus all the people after himself and he just he's gone completely mad with power he's gone completely insane yeah and uh so yeah so his his uh his prefect the head of the praetorian guard his chamberlain and his mistress they all conspire to kill him she slips him some poison and he goes to take a bath and he passes out and this like wrestler guy like one of his you know he'd like to hang out with all these wrestlers you know and uh so the wrestler guy, one of you know, comes in and he strangles him to death in the in the bath, and uh, so they so they got the body, and um, you know, they're not really sure exactly what to do, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess they are actually, I guess they are exactly. I'll ju- I'll read what Gibbon has to say. All right, so Commodus has just been strangled to death. Uh, Gibbon says, "quote The measures of the conspirators were conducted with the deliberate coolness and celerity." with the greatness of the occasion required. They resolved instantly to fill the vacant throne with an emperor whose character would justify and maintain the, the action that had been committed. They fixed on Pertinax, prefect of the city, an ancient senator of consular rank, whose conspicuous merit had broke through the obscurity of his birth and raised him to the first honors of state. He had successfully governed most of the provinces of the empire, and in all his great employments, military as well as civil, he had uniform, uniformly distinguished himself by the firmness, the prudence, and the integrity of his conduct. He now remained almost alone among the friends and ministers of Marcus, and when, at the late hour of night, he was awakened with the news that the chamberlain and prefect were at his door, he received them with intrepid resignation and desired that they would execute their master's orders. Instead of death, they offered him the throne of the Roman world. <laughs> God. Pertinex is like, all right, I saw so, this coming. Yeah. Y'all are here to fucking kill me. Okay, get it yep. over with quickly, please. And they're like, uh, do you want to be empire? Emperor? <laughs> like... Yep, exactly. <laughs> What a wake-up call, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, so this guy Pertinex, I mentioned him a little bit more, but so this is the replacement. And um, this this guy really was 
basically anti-communist. He had served, he had stepped foot in almost every province in the empire. He had been a governor there and he had done a great job pretty much everywhere he went, except when he was dealing with some of the military in his stay in Britain, there was a rebellion against him because he was too strict. So the soldiers at this point had already lost a lot of their, uh, their discipline. And Pertinax is an old school guy. He's one of Marcus's guys. Yeah. You know, he want, This is. Uh, he's going to put things right. The soldiery's like, like, wait a minute. We're used to being like bribed and coddled and shit. Like, what is all this that you're trying to sell us? Like. Yeah. So a little bit more about this guy, Pertinax. So he was the son of a freed man, which means a, a slave who became free. And he became an officer in the army and distinguished himself in these wars against Parthia, those wars that Marcus was fighting when, when they brought back the plague. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so through his merit, through his courage and his, uh, his, his commanding, um, his tactics and that kind of stuff, he was promoted to higher and higher political and military um, positions. So he, he very much kind of climbed the ladder uh, of merit. Uh, he kind of worked his way up and he eventually becomes, you know, governor in upper and lower Mosia and Dacia. And these are these new provinces that, um, you know, Marcus had set up across the Rhine. These are like the hardest pro- or across the Danube. These, the, these are brand new provinces, you know, filled with barbarians. This is the guy that they sent to manage them. And he did a great job until, you know, communists got rid of him. anyways. And he was also in Britain. So this guy, um, you know, he, he, he had done his time. He knew the empire intimately. He knew both civil and military affairs intimately. And he was very much renowned by all of his colleagues. And so Cassius Dio, you know, was a, a contemporary of his. And he speaks on him in the highest light as this guy really was kind of like the second coming of Marcus. This was, this was what, this was Marcus's true son. Like Marcus always should have selected Pertinax and, and Pertinax really, at least a lot of people felt had a chance to kind of set things right. Yeah. And so he kind of uh, embarks on this um, ambitious kind of um, reform uh, campaign where he wants to basically try and get the armies and the soldiery to start being disciplined again because you know this has always been fundamental for roman uh for roman arms was discipline you know that you talk about the word uh decimate Mm -hmm. that you know that was punishment to to the legions if they if if somebody fucked up well then they they'd kill every 10th man yeah like like that's fucking crazy dude yeah i mean because i hear people misusing it all the time it does it is it is misused it's colloquially it means something different yeah right? colloquial it means like to destroy utterly but technically yeah. it does mean to reduce by 10 percent. yeah and so this is the discipline of the roman armies is that you know you're expected to follow orders exactly or you know you could get a bunch of your guys your buddies killed you know like so you know but it had fallen so far that by this time that uh, you know a guy like pertinax was embarrassed by it and and it really wasn't that long ago where Aurelius was right. This is how long has this been that uh, um, since Marcus? Since, yeah. How long was Commodus Empire emperor for? I think he was emperor for 15 years. So uh, his reign was 178 to 192 or 177 to 192. Okay. 
and he he is murdered on New Year's Eve. Okay. Uh, the 31st of December. And so the plotters, you know, they arrive at Pertinax's, um, his house late at night and they wake him up and they ask him to be the emperor. And he accepts. Uh, he apparently did not want to do it, but they convinced him to do it, is the story. Um, this guy wasn't stupid. He, you know, when the guys, when the Chamberlain and, and uh, Praetorian Prefect showed up, you know, at his at his door, he assumed they were going to kill him, you know. So he he, had, he knew how things worked, you know. Like he, yeah, and he's like, oh, you're not going to kill me right now. You want me to be emperor? You're just, this is just going to be like a slow killing? Okay. <laughs> you know, and like he, he is criticized by a lot of people because of what ends up happening. And we'll just, I'll just say it right here. So, um, you know, so he's only emperor for about, I think, like three months. And during this time, though, he is very popular. Uh, you know, he, like I said, he has served in all these different provinces. He's been in Africa. He's been in the Middle East. He's been in Britain. He's been in Gaul, uh, you know, uh, across the Danube, you know, he, Italy. You know, I think the only place he wasn't was Spain. But this guy's very, very, very popular with the people that, you know, after, after Commodus, this was, this was a nice kind of, this was a nice change, a ray sure. of hope. And, but at um, the same time, like, I could see there being questions about his right to rule, like who really appointed him, like these. Absolutely. You know, uh, so. <laughs> and this, this was a very kind of almost um, Republican appointment. You know, this guy is not related to anybody. Sure. He is the most qualified guy. Oh yeah, and definitely. That's why, that's why he was appointed. I could He's definitely the best see guy for the job. there being like questions though, right? Cause it's like, even though he is obviously the best, like, who actually decided it and it wasn't the emperor it was just like it was basically the head of the praetorian guard the prefect and the chamberlain the head of the court so okay yeah like i said this was a palace coup yeah and um they kind of knew that this is the only guy that they could justify this these incredibly audacious actions that they just murdered their emperor and their you know to justify that well we're going to get this incredibly qualified guy yeah and... we had to do it the ends justify the means like we're going to get exactly. somebody in here who can like fix all of this exactly and so all right so unfortunately so pertinax is um he is you know declared ruler on the first of january and um he starts these reforms and uh, unfortunately, these did not go over well in the Praetorian camp. And there was a rumor that um, he. <laughs> so when when a just a little side note here, when an emperor would come to power, he would have something called a, a donative, which was basically a huge bribe you'd pay to the military. So this donative, like if you you'd promise your soldiers a certain amount of money for them to follow you, you know, follow me and I'll give you this much money after we win kind of thing. Okay. So this was a common practice and you know, everybody did this. So apparently the rumor was that he went back on his donative that he had promised the army to remain loyal to him. Mm -hmm. He had tried to cut it in half. That's what the claim was. Now, other people just claim that the Praetorian camp was so used to this kind of licentious and luxurious lifestyle that uh, they basically got, got drunk and um, 
didn't want to be disciplined and decided they were going to march on the palace. So what happens on, you know, so March 28th. Just real quick, though, like, so just give a little context about, like, what's what's happening here. Like, this would be, like, uh, what, like, if if the Secret Service was, like, this huge force, like, spread out all over, then they decided that they don't like who's in charge and they march on the place where the person lives to yeah. de- dethrone them. Like, yeah. So the dudes that are, like, straight up supposed to be protecting the emperor aren't super into his, like, rulership style. It's so, um, I guess, ironic because... Yeah, Pertinax is popular with the people and the Senate. But unfortunately, that's really not where power lies anymore. Power lies in the camp, in the Praetorian camp. And he's appeasing the Senate. He's appeasing the people. He's trying to get back to good rulership. But guess who he's not appeasing? Soldiers. Mm. And so, yeah, it would be like if, I don't know if the Secret Service is quite the right metaphor, maybe like the National Guard or... Or I don't know. Like, yeah, <laughs> I really, if, I don't know if we we don't have an. There, there's not an. There's really not an equivalent. Yeah. yeah, there's. This was a standing military force. Sure. You know, there's um, you know, thirty thousand of these guys at this. Point. Okay. What um, about like? Doesn't the Pope have like a guard to protect him? The Swiss Guard. Yeah. Swiss yeah. Guard, yeah. It, it would be like. It's kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. It would be like the Swiss Guard deciding to assassinate the Pope or something, right? Like. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. <laughs> It would, be, it would be exactly that, yeah. Okay, cool. Glad we finally <laughs> fucking got there. <laughs> and then, uh, all right, so this is what happens. So this angry mob of drunken Praetorians march on the gates of the palace. And all of the soldiers, all of the guards, who are supposed to be guarding the emperor, they don't stop them. <laughs> Nobody stops these guys. And so they're outside the palace, and Pertinax decides to go out there by himself and arg- and to talk with them. So he he opens the gates. He comes out. He's like, "Hey, and everybody, chill out." <laughs> he he comes out with this remarkable air of dignity, and he starts lecturing them, admonishing them, talking them down, belittling them, how they've broken their oath. They're acting disgraceful. They're embarrassing, you know, the whole, you know, legacy of Rome. All and true, this, this is right. <laughs> All true, all true, and apparently, at least according to Cassius Dio, this was working until one of the Praetorians um, struck the first blow, and once he had attacked him, everybody else started attacking him, and he was uh, he was quickly dispatched. Uh, they beheaded him, and they marched uh, back to the camp with his head on a pike. Okay, so they're marching through the streets of Rome with the emperor's head on a pike. Yes, they've just murdered the emperor. Uh, the populace shows up, and they are extremely upset. Yeah, <laughs> this know, is I, really yeah. bad. <laughs> Dejected. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they look on in um, helplessness. Nobody can do anything about this. And um, they get back to the to the Praetorian camp, and one of the guys gets really drunk and... Uh, goes on to uh, the parapet and calls out as loud as he can that the the empire is now for sale and that people who are interested in buying it need to show up and we're holding an auction on the empire. And so <laughs> word is spread throughout Rome that uh, 
but yeah, the the uh, the empire is now for sale. So if you want to buy it, show up at the camp. Show up at the Praetorian camp, and it's going to go to the highest bidder. <laughs> I think that this is probably a good place to stop, right? Like with the Praetorian guard auctioning off the Roman Empire. Well, yeah, oh, just a, a brief little bit more. Um, so there, there is a senator named uh, uh, Didius Julianus, and um, he's one of the most wealthy men in Rome, and he is having dinner with his family when the news comes that the emperor's been killed and that the empire's for sale. And so he's, uh, he's having dinner with his family, and he's talking with his kids and his wife, and they're like, yeah, you should go down there. You should go down there and, you know, Throw your name into the hat. And so this guy goes down there and you guess what? He wins the, uh, he buys the empire ship. He buys the empire. And so he is crowned the next day. Emperor Julianus. Now, unfortunately, this did not go over very well with the legions and their generals. And um, basically, as soon as word had spread to Britain, to the Danube and to the Middle East, well, all three of their huge armies started uh, marching on Rome at the same time. And these three generals that were leading these three armies, they all had a claim that they had to save Rome from this awful usurper and these people that have murdered the emperor. And uh, so, yeah, I think this is a good time to stop. Yeah. Okay. So now we've got this guy that bought the empire who's the quote-unquote emperor all, yes. of, all of the cool powerful armies for which rome has always been known are not like protecting their borders anymore instead they're going back to the capital to try to they're all <laughs> yes buy the power or sort yes. shit out or whatever their motivations are um so this is yeah this is basically like a shit storm about to happen <laughs> it's already happening but yeah this is an unmitigated shit storm <laughs> <laughs> and like this guy Pertinax is like a really kind of tragic figure in uh in history and you know like I said Machiavelli uh Machiavelli talks about him and he's kind of one of the examples of this double-edged sword about um it, it, it wasn't for bad actions that he was that he was hated it was actually for good actions that he was hated just by the wrong people so you know you don't have to be a bad ruler to be hated. You can also be a good ruler and still be hated. Sure. If you're, you know, and, and he did call his, you know, his decision to confront the guards foolish. And it, it, it probably was. Yeah. Well, I think he was operating under a different set of principles than they were. Right. He was from the old school. He still thought that there was some dignity and honor in the position. Maybe. I don't know. Absolutely. No, he he demanded respect with the dignity that he carried himself and with the way that he, you know, the courage which he faced, you know, his doom. He was not a coward. I mean, uh... so, yeah, this guy, you know, he only ruled for like a few months, but he's one of the most kind of mysterious or one of these rulers in history that you just kind of wonder about that. Yeah. If, if, okay. So if Marcus Aurelius would have made Partnax his uh, successor instead of Commodus, would we be speaking gosh. Latin right now? You know? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I know. Right. Like, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those. Yeah. And if, uh, if the Praetorian guards hadn't murdered him, mm -hmm. you know, 
maybe he could have saved the empire. Maybe he could have reformed it, you know? Or what would have happened if they wouldn't have murdered Commodus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I feel like we see that play out later. So maybe we already know what happened. It maybe just would have happened sooner. I don't know. Well, yeah. And little spoiler alert. <laughs> this type of thing tends to keep happening a lot <laughs> Things are, as like, we go on yeah, as we continue on because this isn't we're obviously not to the end of the story here so as we continue our investigation into this like we're gonna see things getting wilder and wilder <laughs> it's it's very uh it's very ironic and unfortunate but yeah uh, one of the guys who ends up you know succeeding commodus as the eventual emperor you know uh, it's a very good emperor but he has a piece of shit son too and it's you know just looking at this stuff from a gulf of history it just seems like so obvious that this is a bad way to do things and why do you keep doing things the same way when you've just just witnessed how horrible it was and you personally had to march your fucking army on rome to rescue it from all that like and then you put your son in the same position and he's just as bad as Commodus. so like mm. We learned nothing from history except for that we learned nothing from history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who said that? I think it was Cicero. <laughs> so I think as we continue on uh, looking at the wheels really fucking coming off of this thing called the Roman Empire, uh, yeah, there's there's some fun, wacky stuff that we're probably going to talk about, right? <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. Think- and it, at this point, there's something that can, you know, just, just to to keep in mind is that the boundaries of the Roman empire on paper are at their farthest expanse they've ever been on paper. Mm-hmm. This is the height of the Roman empire, but internally things have gone to shit and there's this rot. There's this rot right at the core that is, you know, it's cancer like, and people try and excise it. They try and, you know they try and cut it out but it it keeps coming back and why is that you know why is this thing why are people keep making the same mistakes you know i can yeah i don't know but it's it's interesting like it it seems to me that this is a form of government that is inherently in decline <laughs> and there are kind of peaks along the way where you get some guys like marcus but it just doesn't have the ability to rescue itself when it it has a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. I found actually, I found a given quote. And I think this applies. I'm actually not sure if, the, if he's talking directly about Commodus or not, but I do think it applies. Um, he says, The ascent to greatness, however steep and dangerous, may entertain an active spirit with the, consci- uh, with the consciousness and exercise of its power. But the possession of a throne could never yet afford a lasting satisfaction to an ambitious mind. So I think, well, he does, he does make a distinction between people who ascended the throne themselves and people who kind of inherited. Okay, that's, that makes sense. Because if Commodus didn't ascend the throne, but the throne was never enough for him, right? I mean, like, maybe that makes sense. Like, he wasn't, he didn't earn being empire by being super cool and hot. Like he had to, he had to show people how cool and sexy he was, right? Like, yeah, I think it's a good point. You know, like it, it wasn't like he um, did anything special to get the empire. So, 
maybe he felt like he had to prove himself, you know? <laughs> I don't know, but I think it's like living in, living in the shadow of a guy like Marcus, like that does have to be tough. And I don't know, like I, I could see how the pressure to live up to your father's greatness could be something that would be overwhelming and something that maybe you couldn't deal with. And eventually it just kind of leads you down this other path. Or, or like maybe he knew that he would never be able to be like great in the same way. So yeah. maybe he figured like, well, I know I'm like not like that. So maybe I can be great in this other cool way. And everybody will realize I'm the reincarnation of Hercules. <laughs> and everything is all about me all of the fucking time. Like you should name your dog after me. You should name your kids after me. Like... Everything. Every month of the year. Every, every, yeah, everything is Commodus. Commodus Day. I, w- I want to find out what day that is and celebrate Commodus Day. I really think we should celebrate Commodus Day. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> we can have it be like a special ad hoc history holiday. <laughs> <laughs> We can mark the occasion by doing something terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I think like one one of the kind of underlining lessons to be learned from this decline in Rome is that you know it's the transfer of power from the civil authority to the military, right? Or the paramilitary, like, yeah. Or yeah, it's almost like a paramilitary. Yeah, it, man. it is almost like a almost a private kind of military. Yeah, it does not go well for the Romans. It does not go well. And there's also kind of this split between autocratic and Republican rule. Mm -hmm. And like the Republican rule seems to have a much lower ceiling. But at the same time, it doesn't have the same tendency towards disaster. Yeah. The the floor is also much lower. Sure, Sure. As with the autocratic ruler, yeah, you can get Marcus Aurelius. Like... And it's fucking amazing. But unfortunately, you know, yeah, you also get Commodus. You might so. get Commodus or Nero or one of the other ones. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. So it's just like really swingy, you know, sure. like it, and it can't get any more swingy than the story we just talked about where you go from one of the best to one of the worst just, you know, within a few years. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, this is, uh, you know, when Rome ceased to be a republic and it, it went to this this monarchy, I think a lot of people were actually kind of excited because they felt like we can get stuff done now. You know, we, we don't have all these staunchy bureaucrats that are just going to be, you know, holding us back and getting everything tied down in red tape and debating everything and passing all these laws. No, we don't, we got this big, we got a strong man now. We got a King and we can be great now. And mm-hmm. we can find, you know, like, I think, I think that kind of was kind of, you know, it's always kind of been this tendency in society between autocratic rulership or, you know, you know, more, republican or oligarchic or communal or democratic or you know whatever you want to call it but and it it does seem to be this vassalization where when you're in the grip of one you know the grass sure seems pretty green on the other side you know when you have all these crappy senators that have taken over all the land and you know all these slaves are working on the land well yeah then a guy like caesar looks really good but then when you got commodus you know boy those senators look pretty good all of a sudden yeah all of a sudden like that dispersed power where nobody could really fucking get anything done right away sounds pretty great, right? Like... It does, yeah, right. <laughs> and it's just kind of like this irony of like again, this like kind of wheel that just keeps turning, and 
Yeah. I don't know. That's a, that's a pessimistic interpretation. That's a very Thucydian <laughs> interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got one on civil strife. If you if you want to feel bad again. Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Well, all right. So Gibbon, yeah, Gibbon talks about this decline into um, into military rule, and uh, so I'll just quote it here on civil strife. Uh, Most of the crimes which disturb the internal peace of society are produced by the restraints which the necessary but unequal laws of property have imposed on the appetites of mankind by confining to a few the possessions of those objects that are coveted by the many. In the tumult of civil discord, the laws of society lose their force, and their place is seldom supplanted by those of humanity. The ardor of contention, the pride of victory, the despair of success, the memories of past injustice, and the fear of future danger, all contribute to inflame the mind and silence the voice of pity. End quote. Well, thank you for joining us. I hope this episode was coherent. I'm not so sure it was, but yeah, um, we'll see how much uh, sense it makes in post. <laughs> this is ad hoc history, after all. Um, if you have any thoughts, complaints, angry rants that you'd like to send our way, you can hit us up at ad hoc history pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Yeah, thank you. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget to let us know your suggestions, stuff that you think would be interesting to talk about. Uh, we want to hear it, so please let us know. And in the face of all that, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius might say, do not act as if you were going to live 10,000 years. Death hangs over you. While you live, while it is in your power, be good. <laughs>